Reformation. It's been 500 years, since 1517. So uh, we're going to have <clears throat> our uh, sermon series will be based on the Reformation and also our small groups. So uh, very excited about that. That's coming in September. We are still looking for small group leaders, though. So if you're interested, let us know. Uh, we'd like to have a lot of small groups to offer uh, to folks in the church. We, we will be uh, studying the history of the Reformation in those groups through a video series, and that's, the, that's what we showed this morning. So we're very excited about that uh, this fall. All right, I would like to pray, and then we'll, we'll get moving. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for this Sunday. I thank you for this time that we get to spend in your word. I pray that you would bless this time. I pray that we would hear from you. I pray that you would say whatever you want to say during this time. I pray the words of Scripture would sink into our hearts and do their work, challenging, correcting, training, pointing us to you. Would you speak? Would you help me share what you would have me to? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> How many of you can remember your first day at your job? Like the first like job you had. How did that go? I remember my first high school job was at Hardee's. And, you know, I got hired. And, and when you're hired, you, you always feel good, right? You, you got the job. Things are exciting. And, and they put you to work, and, and I remember, it must have been a few weeks into the job now, when I was like, left in the kitchen by myself, you know, like, like nobody else was helping me, they trained me, and now they kind of released you to do all the cooking on your own. Big mistake. Um, but, but I felt good, you know, you're excited about it, and, and you're handling it on your own, you're like, I, I can be trusted to do this, and, and I remember... I remember that night when I was all on my own, uh, there, was, there was kind of a rush that happened. You know, all these people come to the drive-thru and, and they're in the restaurant. And, and I'm handling it all. And there was one person that came through and, and they wanted like 12 cheeseburgers, you know. And, and, and fortunately, they didn't order like them all differently. Like some of you do, you know, like save the pickles, extra ketchup, you know, all that. None of that stuff. I mean, this was just like straightforward, get it done. These are cheeseburgers. So, um I could do that, so I put the wrapper out, you know, and I, I got a dozen of them here, and I got the buns out, and, and, and then I got the, the condiment dispensers, which are kind of like, like guns, you know, like you squeeze them, and it's like, you know, so I got those, and one in each hand, you know, so I'm doing my thing, right, and, I'm, and I've got it all, and pickles are going out, they're all getting wrapped up, and they're getting sent out, and I'm like, I did it, I did it, and, and, then, uh, and then the manager was like, at some point, she walked out, and she's like, are you all right now, and I'm like, yeah, I'm okay, like, it was just a little crazy there. And then about 15 minutes went by, and, and, and the person that ordered the dozen burgers came back in and said, we got a little problem here. There's no meat in the hamburgers. Like, there's nothing. Not, there's nothing. You know, and I was too busy, like, you know, squirt, 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 you know, like, being fancy, right? I was being fancy, and I, and I got it all done, kind of. So, um, had to redo that a little bit. Um, so, you know... Your first job and the first week, things can be a little rough. You, you know how that is. So I can only imagine, uh, we looked last week at Felix putting the Apostle Paul on trial. And, and, and Felix, in an unscrupulous way, decided, I'm going to do a favor to the Jewish people, and I'm just going to keep Paul in prison for two years. Maybe longer if they didn't get rid of him. It's just like, I'm just going to do that. And then 
And then after two years, uh, Felix gets out of that position, and they got a new guy in. The guy that replaces Felix is named Festus. And Festus, this is like, you know, first days on the job, right? And Festus is like, I'm going to handle the Paul case. I'm going I'm to bring this guy in. Yes, I hear he's been accused of causing a riot in the temple. I heard he brought a, a Greek guy into the temple. And we're just going to figure this out. We're going to settle this once and for all. First week on the job, that kind of idea. The problem was, he brings in Paul, Paul defends himself, and Paul says, I didn't do any of this that they're accusing me of. He goes through the whole thing again. I didn't do what the people are accusing me of doing. I haven't been in Jerusalem very long, and and I haven't stirred up any trouble. And so Festus has a a problem. What are you going to do with Paul? And so Festus says, Paul, how about we send you back to Jerusalem, and we'll figure things out there. And Paul says, I don't want to go back to Jerusalem. I'm already in front of Caesar's court. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus has this moment where he like confers with his people. It's almost like he says, can you do that? You know, is that all right? You know, and, uh, and it's like, yeah, he can do that. He can appeal to the highest court in the empire. He can appeal as a Roman citizen to Caesar himself. That would be Nero, by the way. He can go straight to the top as a Roman citizen. And so... At first, Festus is like, okay, good, good, great. We'll send him to Caesar. Now, wait a minute. I'm going to send him to Caesar, but the charges against him are all, like, fake. They're wrong. So what will it look like at my first job here if I send an innocent man to Caesar with no charges attached? I look like an idiot. Like, what am I doing? Well, what does he do? Turn to Acts 25. Turn to Acts chapter 25. All right, we're in Acts 25, and we're going to pick it up at verse 13. And, and as I read this, I want you to, I want you to get that it, there's a little bit of irony here. It's a little bit comical that, that Festus comes in here like, I'm going to settle this once and for all. Like, Felix couldn't figure this trial thing out with Paul, but I'm going to do it. And suddenly Felix is like, this is not easy. You know, I, I, I'm in trouble here. So this is verse uh, 13 of Acts chapter 25. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them this is not the Roman custom to hand over a man before he's faced his accusers and had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, They didn't charge him with any of the crimes I expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute about him, about their own religion, and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem to stand trial there for these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man for myself. He replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. 
Now we'll pause there for a second before we get a chance to see how they convene the court. Um, Festus is in trouble. He doesn't want to look like an idiot to Caesar, but it just so happens that Herod Agrippa... Now, if you remember, um, way back in Acts, earlier in Acts, we saw that there was a Herod Agrippa that killed James, you know, and, and, and he ended up dying, like the Lord struck him, and, and he died. And now there's a second Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa the second, and this is the guy here. And, and, and kind of like if you've read the Bible enough, even if you've only been in church at Christmas time, you know the name Herod, don't you? Like, these guys always oppose Jesus. They're always against the church. They often have something to do with trials. And here we have history repeating itself. You have another Herod. He's a king. We call him King Agrippa. And he's here, and he's going to listen to Paul. But the thing is, the reason Festus does this is because he's thinking, oh my goodness, I am saved. I now have somebody experienced that can listen to Paul and tell me what in the world I'm going to say to the emperor. Like, someone can, like, stand in for me and give me some advice, you know, because I don't know what I'm going to do here. So uh, they're talking, and Festus says something very interesting. He says, this case is not going like I thought it would. Now, if you look at 19 and 20, I want to call your attention to those two verses in particular. He's saying, this is not going the way I thought, and he, and he said, instead, verses verse 19, they, the Jews, had some points of dispute with Paul about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. And I read that, and I see, I see objections that you and I hear every day to our faith. I mean, I think Festus summarizes the same things you're going to hear when people think about Jesus. I just want to take a minute, just a few minutes, and, and, and just talk about some of those all-too-common objections to the faith that Festus says right here. Number one, uh, these are private religious beliefs. In, in verse 19, Festus is saying, the Jews have these beliefs, and, and apparently Paul has offended their beliefs. And this is what we hear today. You know, this is, this is your own thing. That this is your faith. It's not mine. You can do your thing. I'll do my thing. And, and we'll just leave it like that. In fact, the word for religion in this verse 19, if you look at that, the word for religion in Greek, in a positive way, it can mean religious. In a negative way, it can mean superstitious. Okay? Now you get the difference there, right? Like, like religious beliefs are like, okay, I respect what you believe and, and, and it's your thing. Superstitious is like, you're kind of crazy, you know? Like you have these weird stuff that you believe and, and, and it doesn't make sense and it's just, it's just kind of your own bizarre little thing. It, it's superstitious. It can be positive, it can be negative. I don't know how Festus is using the word. Obviously in your Bible translations, the, the interpreters translate it religious. So I think they're going for a little bit more positive connotation to it. But regardless, this is what we hear. Whether someone is being uh, positive or negative, one thing you're going to hear is, this is your faith. These are your personal beliefs. They're not mine. I don't really want anything to do with them. I don't want to consider them. You do it. This is your thing. The problem with that statement is that there is a 
confrontational element to our faith. It's faith for all. It's offered to all. If God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, that's for everybody. So people to say, that's your private faith, keep it private, keep it to yourself. I mean, I've even read people within the church that say, you shouldn't take advantage of situations and share your faith when you're talking to a stranger. I say, no way. That can't be. Because salvation's offered to everybody. It's not, your faith is not meant to be private. Christianity's always been designed to be public. And for you to go public with it. That's why baptism is the way it is. It's, it's a public statement. So don't fall for that. Don't go into that whole thing of, I've got to keep it to myself. It's private. The second thing uh, Festus says is, this Jesus is just another dead guy. You know? You notice how he says it. He says, this argument is about this dead man Jesus whom Paul claims is alive. Now look at how he says that. Who is Jesus? He's a dead guy. But Paul claims, claims, it's opinion. It's the language of, this is what you think. This is your opinion about this. The fact is, he died. It's your opinion that he lives. You see what Festus does there? And, and you know why he talks like that. Because Romans don't botch executions. Apparently they do botch standing in front of a grave and keeping the dead guy in. But, you know, um, regardless, regardless, Romans don't botch executions. And so Jesus is a dead guy. And you think he's alive. It is the opinion of a lot of people that Jesus is just a man who got too popular too fast, went up against the mighty Romans, went up against his own people, the Jewish leaders, and got himself killed. And and they bring Jesus from the level of the God-man down to just the man. And if you can keep Jesus at just the level of human being, If you can pull him down to that level, you can write him off as just a dead guy, and some people think he's alive, superstitious that they are. But if Jesus is alive, then I have to deal personally with that. If the tomb is empty, i got to answer for that, because I don't know anybody that's come back to life like that, three days in in the tomb. If that's real... I can't write him off as a dead guy. That's what Festus says. Number three, he says this also. I, I have no way of knowing. This is verse 20. He says, I don't even know how to investigate this. How do I find out if Jesus is really alive? Well, he ascended to heaven. So I can't see him. How am I supposed to figure this thing out? They're mad because Paul says Jesus is alive, and I can't prove he's alive or dead. I have no idea. This is verse 20. There's no way to know for sure. And people will say that to you. How can I be sure that Christianity is true? There's so many different religions. How would I ever know? Very, very common objections to the faith. But there's good news in the face of these objections. And I want to share one major point I'd like you to take away in light of these objections to the faith. We've got to read the rest of the passage first, though, okay? Okay, so uh, we are in chapter 25 still. We are in verse 23. This is the day of court. This is the trial. This is it. Verse 23. 
The next day, Agrippa and Bernice, by the way, Agrippa and Bernice, one more thing I didn't say about them. Uh, you know, they're, they're half-brother, half-sister, and yet there were rumors flying that they were also in an incestuous relationship. So there's some odd stuff going on there. Uh, Luke doesn't mention it. He, he kind of just skims over it. But he talks about them together. And so there's not really this understanding of, like, you know, why are they together? Why are they traveling? Are they traveling as family? Are they traveling as a couple? That's gross. But, but this, is, this is Luke just saying they're together and they're listening to Paul. That's how it is. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found that he's done nothing deserving of death. But because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I had nothing definite to write his majesty about him. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. And then chapter 26, verse 1, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. To be continued next week. Um, now, um, now, do, do you get the feeling of what Festus is doing here? Um, please help me, Agrippa. You know, I'm in a really bad place here. You tell me what you think. And all of you nobles, all of you people here, all, all of you people of high rank, please tell me what we're going to do in this situation. He's, he's basically letting Agrippa, like, run the whole thing. Like, you're in charge now. I just kind of want to take a step back. You get the feeling of it's like Pontius Pilate. I wash my hands of this. This is just, like, beyond me. And as I read chapter 25, I would ask you this. If you were studying chapter 25 of the book of Acts, how, what, what, what in the world is it there for? Like, why do you have chapter 25 in this amazing book called Acts? We've seen Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. We've seen the persecution of the church and how the church spread to different areas. We saw the grand vision of Peter, you know, and, and, and seeing the unclean animals, and that's the Gentiles coming. Like, we've seen all these great things in Acts. Why in the world is there an Acts 25 with Festus and his dilemma and Paul? What's going on? And I asked myself that all week. Sometimes in preaching, you know, when you preach, when you study a passage, there's always a point to it. There's always a purpose behind it. There's a point. We call that the exegetical point. When you preach, you have a main point of your sermon. We call it the pedagogical point. Sometimes those two things overlap, right? Where the main point of the passage is also the main point you're preaching. I think that happens here. I think the reason Acts 25 is in our Bibles is an awesome reason I want to encourage you with today. And that's this. You ready? God is setting the table for a major truth confrontation. Now do you see it? God is setting the table for a major truth 
confrontation. Paul is about to speak and tell me who's in the room. Well, I know exactly who's in that room because Luke went to great lengths to tell us. There's high-ranking people, Herod Agrippa, Festus, and all of, all of the court with all of its pomp, it says, you know, all of, its, all of the beauty of that and the ceremonial things going on, they're all there. And what are they there for? To hear the gospel from the mouth of the Apostle Paul. That's it. God has set the table, and it's perfect. It's perfect. Now let me explain what I mean by that a little further. When I say setting the table, we, we have a phrase in, in the Christian uh, church we call these things Christianese, right? You know, it's like something that we say sometimes and people don't know what we're talking about. Sometimes we call this a divine appointment. You know, it's not your doctor's appointment, it's your divine appointment. Meaning that God has orchestrated things in such a way that you need to have a conversation with somebody. And it just so happened that God made it work out perfectly. You didn't know it was going to happen, but it did. Um, that's what's going on here. My favorite divine appointment story. I don't think I've shared it here at church before, but if I have, forgive me. But it's my favorite one. Um, I took a group of teenagers downtown Chicago, and we were on Michigan Avenue, and they were sharing their faith with people on Michigan Avenue. Now, cold turkey evangelism, that's what we call it, you know. I'm not a huge fan of that. I'm not a huge fan of, like, walking up to somebody and, hi, I'm so-and-so, can I talk to you today, you know. I'd rather build a relationship and get to know them a little better first. We talked about that last week. Um, But... It's okay, you know, like sometimes you're just going to run into somebody and you should be ready to share your faith. So I'm okay with that. So I had a group of teenagers at a conference and, and we went downtown Michigan Avenue and our, and our job was to talk to people. And, and all of the conference was in many different places in Chicago. They were like all over the place. And, and so I don't know how many people were on Michigan Avenue. I mean, there, there could have been 50 people, you know, there could have been 50 teenagers with adults down there talking to people. And one of the stories that came back, I mean, I talked to people, you know, and, and I just shared, and a lot of people didn't want to talk to me, and it's okay. Um, but after that, we went back to our conference, and we're all in this huge room. There's thousands of us there, and, and, and they're sharing stories. And one of the stories was there was a guy on Michigan Avenue that day, and he was probably shopping, you know, he was running around down there. Maybe he was doing business. I have no idea. But he stopped like three or four times for these teenagers. Like, like, like they saw him. And three or four times, he got into conversations with people from our conference. And by the fourth time, he was just like, I can't get away from you people, you know? Like, I think I need to give my life to Jesus, you know? And and, and that day, he gave his heart to Christ. And and I'm just like, again, it's not my favorite form of evangelism. I don't think I'm very good at it. But God used it. Like, that guy got saved, you know? Like, it's amazing. So uh, all I got to say is, God is orchestrating your life in such a way where you have relationships with people that need to hear the gospel. And that person is in your life not to drive you crazy. Maybe they are developing patience, so I don't know. But, but you know, um, but they're there for you to share the gospel with. That's why they're there. Can I just ask you to close your eyes just for a second? Humor me for a second. Close your eyes. Who is that person that's in your life that needs to hear the gospel? Who is it? 
coworker, friend, family member, open your eyes. Who came into your mind at that moment? Who was it? Somebody. Somebody. And they need to hear. They need you to pray. And God will orchestrate the perfect chance for them to hear the gospel. You may not share it as well as you want to. You may never get a chance at all. And maybe somebody else that gets a chance. But that person is on your mind for a reason. And God is setting the table. Now, let me say one more thing about this table thing. Um, if, I, if Paul was with us today, and I said, Paul, God set the table perfectly. How do you think Paul feels in that moment? Like, on the one hand, that's super exciting that you get to share with all these people. On the other hand, how long has he been under arrest? Two years. Two years of waiting. Two years of sitting around. Two years of no limited freedom. Paul's life is not the way we would want our life to be. Think about this. When you look at the table God has set for you, it may not look right. The fork may be in the wrong place. The cup may be turned over and spilling Kool-Aid everywhere, you know? That may be the table God has set for you. In other words, your life might be a mess. And you would never have company over to share the gospel because your life is a mess. Again, red Kool-Aid all over the white tablecloth. This is not the table I want to be set in front of me. But it's the table God has set for you. And he wants you to sit at it and share your faith. Think about that. The garbage of your life could be the gateway to sharing the gospel with somebody. Think about that. And what it takes from you is being transparent with somebody. I'm not saying share your garbage with everybody. I'm not saying that. But there might be somebody God has you go to and, and you know and you say, you know what, let me tell you a little bit about my life. Tell the story. Pull the garbage out. Dump it on the table. Yeah, it stinks. But that person needs to smell it and see it and know that you're as real as they are. And then you tell them about Jesus who cleans things up, cleans up sin, promises heaven, will deal with all the garbage one day. That is a set table. And it may look a little different than your idea of the candlelight dinner and the, and the glasses are out perfectly. But that's it. That's it. <clears throat> next week, next week we get to hear about Paul sharing his faith. Some of you are going to tell me, I think you preached two sermons about that so far this summer, about Paul sharing his story. I'm going to do number three. I think next week what I'm going to do is I'm going to compare the three times Luke records Paul's story and see, like, what was Luke trying to say in each one of those? Like, like the stories are just a little bit different. What was Luke trying to communicate in each of those stories? But the audience is ready. They're ready to hear. The question is, are you ready to share? Are you excited to share? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes now? Can I... Uh,